Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There's stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. As my regular listeners know, I usually pick out a particular topic and take a deep dive into it for each episode, trying to live up to my promise of giving you story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else. Well, this episode is going to be a little different. I've got one main item I want to hit, but I saw so many interesting moments, telltale moments in Monday night's slate of games, moments that I believe reflect statements of one kind or another about the players and their teams that I don't want them to go unmentioned, unrecognized, unexamined. So, I won't. Now, the vast majority of them are positives. The subtle decisions that are the reason, one of the reasons, I love the game of basketball and conversely hate when someone tries to make a statement or an argument using statistics or numbers. And no, in this case, the word hate is not being overused. It's not exaggeration. I hate it. Because numbers are just that. They don't tell you anything or... Maybe more accurately, you can use them to say almost anything, and therefore, they don't tell you anything. I just saw someone respond to LeBron missing badly the potential game-tying shot against the Blazers the other night. Not Monday night. I think it was Sunday or on, on the weekend. And the person who put out the first post Uh, brought up Michael Jordan, suggesting that Jordan didn't miss such shots. And a LeBron fan answered back by claiming that LeBron's clutch stats are higher than Jordan's. That's what I hate. How are clutch stats calculated? Who calculates them? What are the chances that the fan knows how they're calculated or what they mean? Because... Numbers, whether you 
know it or not, have to be extrapolated. Most of them have to be extrapolated from film, which means someone has to watch the film to gather the numbers. And in watching the film and gathering the numbers, they have to make a multitude of judgment calls. There is nothing purely analytical about numbers when it comes to sports. And whoever is extrapolating the numbers from the film, what are the chances that they're taking into account everything that the film tells us? I saw a definition of clutch stats, and I don't know if this is what the poster or responder or the LeBron fan was referring to, but I saw a definition of clutch stats for the NBA as being all the stats in the final final five minutes of any game with the two teams within five points of each other or less. First of all, what an arbitrary line. Why not the final minute or at most two minutes for every possession that there is a one score difference? Being down one or two points is vastly different than being up by four, say. There's actually no comparison. I don't even know why I'm making this argument because even that, the one minute, two minute, one possession, that wouldn't guarantee that the numbers accurately capture who is more clutch. Because whatever the formula is, it can't simply be about statistical results. Because that doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you the importance of the game, where the two teams are in the standings, if either of them played the night before, what the injury situation is. It doesn't tell you if the player was double teamed at the time. It doesn't tell you anything about the opponent. It doesn't tell you where the shot clock was at the time the player received the ball or shot it. Does it give extra credit for three th- for free throws? It should, you know, since getting to the line means added foul trouble for the opponent or potentially fouling out a key opponent and allows the free throw shooter's team to set its defense for the next stop. Are we taking into account if it was a home or away game which would impact strategy, as in what kind of shot the team went for? And don't try to tell me it all evens out, that both Michael and LeBron faced pretty much the same situations over the course of their careers. There's no way of proving that, demonstrating that, and I doubt that it's true. It's based on what? I'll give you one simple variable. For the better part of Michael's career, the best teams were in the Eastern Conference. For the better part of LeBron's career, the best teams were in the West, the other conference. That's just for starters. Now, let's get to LeBron's turnaround miss, mid-range jumper, over Damian Lillard in the loss to the Blazers. That was a decision. That we can extrapolate a lot from. He got the ball in the front court with nine seconds on the clock. He was not double teamed. He had time to attack the rim or work his way to a better shot if he wanted to. Now, I've been lauding LeBron for how much his mid-range shot has improved the last two years. But it ain't Michael's. The fundamentals of LeBron's shot are not as pure. LeBron's fundamentals in general don't come close to Michael's. And LeBron generally shoots that shot well at the start of games. I don't know if it's fresh legs, lack of pressure, knowing a miss doesn't really mean as much in the first quarter. 
defense not being particularly stout because a stop doesn't mean as much in the first quarter. But it's not the fearsome go-to weapon that Mike's was. That's just a fact. There's a simple way to describe LeBron's decision. He settled. He could have forced the issue. He could have given himself a chance to go to the free throw line or draw a second defender and dish it. And for those who would suggest that he doesn't want to be at the free throw line, yeah, probably true, but he's shooting well over 70% this year. He shouldn't be afraid of going to the free throw line. But no, he decided to bet on his mid-range turnaround jumper, and he missed badly. This wasn't an in and out. This was a brick that never had a chance. Now, decisions tell you something about the player and the team that resonates. It gives you the ability to predict what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Decisions can be weighed within the context of when they're made. A shooter pulls up and drains a three with no hesitation with a hand in his face in the first quarter or when that team is up by 18. That's different than fourth quarter, three minutes left, down by six. Now, I picked six specifically in this case because with today's prevalence of three-pointers, chances are a miss of a three and the other team is getting out on the break and launching its own three, which means a potential swing from making the difference one score, three points, or making it a three-score difference, nine points, if you miss and the opponent connects. Hope I didn't get too far in the weeds there. But on to the decisions that I saw Monday night. I'm going to start with the most baffling one for several reasons. Not the least of which is because I've been inadvertently linked to the player in question, Ben Simmons, of the Brooklyn Nets. Now, I'm not making note of this because I don't like Ben. Let's make that clear. I am making note of it because Ben is supposed to make all the difference for the Brooklyn Nets this season. And I left the possibility of that being the case open. Ben Simmons talked about the Nets being a championship caliber team on a podcast before the season started. Now, That's a little bit too far for me. I don't think Ben has a clue about what a championship caliber team looks like or how it operates, but I'm willing to find out that I'm wrong and change my opinion. Ben, however, only re-fortified my opinion Monday night. The play in question occurred with about four minutes left in the Nets-Grizzlies game in Memphis. The Nets were trailing by six after a pull-up jumper by Kyrie Irving. John Morant motioned for the inbounder, Santi Aldamba, to roll the ball to him. Morant let the ball roll all the way up the court, hovering over it, but not touching it, which meant the game clock was ticking away, but the 24-second clock did not start because it doesn't until the ball is touched inbounds. Brilliant, shrewd move. The Grizzlies wanted to burn clock. The clock was their friend. And here he was, burning clock, while not having the 24-second clock start. Now, Simmons was guarding Morant. And I use the term loosely because he made no attempt to make Morant pick up the ball at any point in the backcourt. 
The ball rolled all the way into the front court, burning 22 seconds off the clock before Simmons finally pressured Morant enough to force him to pick it up. And he didn't pressure him hard. He just got close enough with that reach to force Ja to pick the ball up. 22 seconds off the clock. That's nearly a full possession. It was better than if the Grizzlies had shot at the shot clock buzzer and got the offensive rebound because that would have only reset the clock to 14 seconds. But the cat and mouse game was not over. After picking it up, Morant just stood there because Simmons was a good five feet off of him. Morant looked back at Grizzlies coach Taylor Jenkins. Now, this was by design. This wasn't, I need to get a play. This was baiting Simmons. Uh, For those who may not know, the NBA five-second rule, one of them, uh, there's the back-down rule after you turn and you're backing somebody down, you got five seconds to pass or take a shot. There's also the five-second rule in terms of guarding a player. A player must pass, shoot, or dribble within five seconds if closely guarded. But Rant wasn't being closely guarded. Another nine seconds ran off the game and shot clock now. Simmons finally realized what was going on and then overreacted. He jumped up on Morant, hand-checked him, and crowded him so closely that Ja went to make a move toward the basket and they collided. 40-plus feet from the basket. J.T. Orr was the referee in the trail position, standing no more than six feet from the play. Had a clear view of it. He blew his whistle. Foul on Simmons. Simmons's sixth foul. Now, I don't know if he was aware of it. I don't know what Simmons was thinking. But he had just allowed 32 seconds off to run off the game clock, and then he fouled out. Now, Simmons and head coach Steve Nash went berserk. Simmons circling his finger to signal that Nash had challenged the call. Now, I'll be honest, I was flipping back and forth through several games. So I don't know if Nash had already used his challenge. I didn't watch every minute of that Nets-Grizzlies game. I'm going to assume he had. But ultimately, it didn't matter. He didn't challenge the call. Simmons walked off, smiling and shaking his head, and Nash stomped around on the sideline. Here's what makes it all even more pitiful. It turns out Morant planned all of that last little sequence because he'd successfully pulled off this trick before on Simmons back in Jaws rookie year he again or for the first time pretended to be paying more attention to Jenkins than Simmons and when Simmons tried to smother him he attacked and drew a foul now John Morant is in his fourth year in the league Ben Simmons is in his seventh. He's only played in five seasons, counting this one, because he sat out his entire first year with a broken foot. I believe it was a broken foot. And didn't play last year because he said he wasn't mentally ready to do so for the Philadelphia 76ers after they blamed him for the second round loss to the Atlanta Hawks last season. He was then traded to the Nets and a back issue prevented him, along with continuing issues of mental health apparently 
prevented him from ever playing last year. I'm not going to get into a debate over mental health, Ben's or anyone else's. At least, not here, not now. I thought the blame for them losing the series, putting that on Ben, was wholly unfair and said so at the time. As many of you know, I'm sure, the blame centered on a late-game play where Ben caught the ball on the baseline, turned and saw a Hawks player running at him, and instead of dunking it or laying it up, dished it to Matisse Thibel, flashing to the rim from the dunker spot on the other side of the basket. The Hawk closing on Ben turned out to be diminutive Trey Young. Thibel, meanwhile, did go up and try to dunk it and got sandwiched between two bigger Hawks, power forwards John Collins and Danilo Gallinari, and as a result was fouled. Thibel went to the line to shoot two free throws, made only the second. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. There were three and a half minutes left when all this this happened, and the one point cut the Hawks' lead to one. 88-87, again, if I'm not mistaken. But Joel Embiid, afterward, insinuated that that play cost them the game. And Doc Rivers did nothing to lessen that when he was asked, does he still believe he can win with Ben? And he was noncommittal. So anyway, uh, Embiid suggested that Ben's decision cost them the game. And note the word that I'm using, his decision. I maintain that it did not. It wasn't a good decision, but it wasn't the one that cost them the game by itself. Not with three and a half minutes left, down by one. It was one of many mistakes the Sixers made and empty possessions they had down the stretch, including some by Embiid. Ben's multitude of decisions against the Grizzlies Monday night in that final sequence does not compare They do not compare to the one against the Hawks. Monday night was far more egregious, far more damning. I saw that some people want to argue that it was a terrible foul call, and that's completely beside the point. Ben had no reason to risk a sixth foul 40 feet from the basket. He went from playing passive, which was curious in and of itself, to uber-aggressive, which also didn't make sense in the moment. Besides, the damage had already been done, allowing all that time to melt off the clock. Even more surprising, a possession or two later, Kyrie, now assigned to guard Morant, allowed something similar to happen. Not quite as bad. But he didn't pressure Morant right from the start. Morant, once again, let the ball roll, the inbound pass roll. Nine more seconds burned off the game clock. Now, shortly after that, I don't know if it was the subsequent possession, might have been 
two. It was one of the, the next two possessions. Kyrie then failed to close out on Desmond Bain, leaving him wide open for a three-pointer, which pushed the Grizzlies lead up from six to nine again. If you want to know why I suggested to all of you to bet the under on the Nets winning 50 games this season, which is where the line was set, this game pretty much captures it. Wildly talented the Nets are, and they know it. That may be the problem, because they seem to think that that's enough. No sense of urgency, no playing smart basketball. Ben has now fouled out of two of the three games he's played in so far. And who went up to him and talked to him about what he should have done afterward, after this Grizzlies loss, after he fouled out, after he let the clock run? I didn't see anybody, which concerns me, which I've pointed out. I don't know that there's leadership on this Nets team. And this was a teachable moment. The importance of attention to detail, of understanding time and score. If you're trying to win a championship, if you're chasing a championship, you understand how important all of those things are. This isn't something to be brushed aside as bad luck or bad whistle. This is how games are lost no matter how talented a team is. And that's exactly what happened. 134 to 124. And this is also how teams don't learn from their mistakes. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, I'm sure they went over that situation on film the next day. I wouldn't be so sure. And even if they did, I'm not convinced Ben, KD, and Kyrie are taking advice these days. Certainly not Ben and Kyrie. There's nothing about the way they play or their attitude, particularly Kyrie towards Steve Nash, that makes me think, that he is teachable. If they were, I would hope some of it would stick and they would play much smarter basketball. For all that the Nets have done, I never look at them and think, wow, they really understand the game. They're playing the game at a deeper level. Talent-wise, sure. Strategically, uh, if I'm missing one, please send it my way. Now, as most of you probably also know, someone from the team told me last summer that before the Nets' fourth game against the Celtics in the first round of the playoffs, there was a text group chat in which one of the players asked Simmons if he was playing in game four, having missed the first three games because of a back issue. I mentioned that little nugget in passing during a conversation with Colin Cowherd on his FS1 show. I mentioned it in answering a question about Kevin Durant's desire to be traded and, by extension, not play with Simmons because it reflected that his relationship with Simmons needed to be mended, in part because of his reluctance, apparently, to be upfront about his availability to help the Nets avoid elimination. And for what it's worth, Simmons was not even on the bench for that game. Simmons, however, in a podcast with J.J. Redick shortly before the season, denied that it happened, denied that there was even a group chat, laughed about it. Now, what happened against the Grizzlies doesn't really have anything to do with the group chat. Not directly. But when I watch a player appear as if he doesn't know exactly what's going on, and yet he wants me to believe that he understands the game at a higher level, 
it raises suspicions about exactly how truthful that guy is. How willing he is to say one thing while doing another. Now, as I said, this doesn't prove anything about who was right about the group chat. I'm standing by what I was told, just for anybody's curious. But more important than anything else, I don't mind being at odds with him over what I was told about the group chat. I'm quite okay putting my credibility up against his. And the Grizzlies situation and what happened and how he handled it is a reflection of why. Now, on to the better stuff. The Toronto Raptors went into Miami and beat the Heat with Scotty Barnes in street clothes. I've really enjoyed watching the Raptors play this season because they appear to enjoy playing with each other. I saw it when they spent the summer nearly the entire damn team playing in the run at UCLA. And I was also told at that time to expect a resurgence by Pascal Siakam. And I'm seeing that as well. I was skeptical, I'll be honest. thought he was one of those energy guys, just got good on the right team at the right time, and that's how he became an all-star. Some would say his numbers last year already indicated a resurgence, but he didn't look anything like he does now. He's playing with immense confidence, not just scoring and defending, but making plays. And I was questioning last year, particularly in the playoffs, when Nick Nurse kept giving him the ball in need situations at the nail or at the top of the key and was looking for him to create something. It did not, more often than not, it did not end well. Now, I would not be surprised if he makes his second All-Star team. No one for the Raptors is playing better right now. They're a modest 2-2, two and two, but they've played a challenging schedule so far. Three-point three win over the Cavs opening night. Four-point loss to the Nets, in which they got a very tough whistle down the stretch. Three-point loss to the Heat the next night. And then a day off in South Beach and yet had the collective focus to avenge that last loss 48 hours later, 98-90. to 90. If you understand the attraction and the temptations of South Beach for NBA players, you'll know how impressive that is, how disciplined they must have been as a team to be right going into that second game and getting a win. I don't know how far they're going, but you can bet that I will be watching. The last notable Monday night moment is from the Blazers and Nuggets game. And this is one that might not mean a lot to most people, but as I said, there are certain decisions that resonate and resonate with me in particular. Now, the Blazers had control of the game for most of the night. That in itself is a surprise. Nuggets are a legit team, although I'll get into why I have some questions about whether they're going to make good on that with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. back. Certainly didn't know what to expect from the Blazers, was not expecting them to come out and be undefeated at this point. Now, there were about four minutes left, and the Blazers leading comfortably, 19, when Josh Hart, the Blazers, grabbed a defensive rebound and outletted it to Anthony Simons, the inheritor of C.J. McCollum's spot next to Damian Lillard in the backcourt. There was at least one Nugget defender back. Simon still attacked, saw a crease, attacked, 
And he could have got off a shot, but it would have been contested. So instead, he flared out to the wing, burned some time off the clock while the rest of the Blazers caught up. And keep in mind, Simons was having a spectacular game. 29 points on 11 of 17 shooting, including 7 of 12 threes. No one would have faulted him for looking for a few more points, attempting a shot, no matter how contested. But he did the smart thing. And I'm sure you're thinking, up by 19, who cares? I'm about to explain why. These little things, these little decisions in moments like this can prove to be so important. He did the mature thing. He turned it out. He ran clock. He got something good, which the Blazers did. As soon as everybody was lined up, Simons attacked the paint and then kicked it to the corner for Damian Lillard for a three. A dagger three. 22-point lead, prompted a Nuggets timeout, and Nuggets coach Mike Malone conceded. Both teams emptied their benches. Now, who knows if Simon slices in for the layup and misses. The Nuggets go the other way and bury a three, and now it's a 16-point difference. The way that it was going, it was clear that Malone, and Malone being the kind of coach that he is, I think he felt like he should hang around, particularly against a team like the Blazers. Young, unproven. Let's see if we can steal one. Let's see if we can come back on him, put some pressure on him. It was close enough with almost four minutes left for Malone to give his starters a few more minutes. And that thereby would have forced Chauncey Billups to stay with Lillard and Nurkic a little longer. Two of his key vets who don't have the greatest of injury histories of late he would have had to risk keeping them out there a little bit longer instead simons makes the decision he does malone makes the decision he does and everybody gets off the floor and the night's work is done all because simons made the unselfish big picture decision to turn out and turn down a fast break bucket by the way before i go where are all the people who were dragging Lillard for not forcing his way to the Lakers? Never mind that it wasn't ever a realistic possibility because of the Lakers' lack of assets. Lillard's drive to win was questioned simply because he pledged allegiance to the Blazers in exchange for a two-year $121 million extension instead of demanding that he be dealt to the Lakers and chase a championship, or so those who were criticizing him said would be the case. Now, I said at the time Lillard was making the only sensible choice, and I respected him more for staying than demanding a trade. I don't care whether it was Philadelphia or Brooklyn. I don't care where he would have demanded a trade. It wouldn't have guaranteed him anything. Not with Milwaukee the way they are. Not with the Warriors the way they are. There's just way too many teams. The teams that would could have potentially been the place that Lillard would go to or the ones that were mentioned? Well, look at him now. What's Philadelphia? What are the Lakers? So it was a sensible choice. Never mind. 36, 37 years old, he's going to be making $60 million a year. Easy for you to say he should pass that up and go chase a championship. I've never questioned his desire to win or his desire to win at all. But how stupid would he look now? The Blazers are 4-0. and 
The Lakers are 0-3. And, and don't think for a minute that Lillard is solving all the Lakers' problems. He's not solving their defensive problems, particularly defending threes. And while he'd certainly improved their three-point shooting, he wouldn't have made up for their lack of depth or quality bigs. And who would they have given up? The Lakers. Anthony Davis? You think that the Lakers are appreciably better with Damian Lillard and LeBron James? And I don't see anyone else on the Lakers roster that Portland would have been remotely interested in. More important, which team is better suited for Lillard to grow old with? Now, he's only 32, but he's basically committed to the Blazers for the next five years. He has Simons next to him and a very promising rookie in Shaden Sharp. Jeremy Grant is only 28. Nasir Little is 22. And perhaps most important, Lillard is still king of the castle. He wouldn't have been in L.A. or Philly or Brooklyn. Now, whatever success he had would have been attributed, in the case of the Lakers, to LeBron. And whatever struggles there would have been, they would be blamed on him. Just ask Russ Westbrook. They would have said he just doesn't know how to play with another star, having never played with one before. And then, when all of that is over, LeBron would retire, and Lillard, at age 33 or 34, would be left with a rebuilding Lakers team. No thank you. And that's exactly what Damien said. Wisely so. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Not exactly sure where I'm going in the next episode, but there's something about the Clippers, particularly now that everybody's all hot and bothered about them winning a championship and all the TNT guys are saying that's their pick, no bones about it. There's something about the Clippers that concerns me. Something that needs to change if indeed they are going to win their first title. Clippers championship. It's weird to put those two things together, but I do see it as a possibility. They do have the requisite pieces, but there's something that I'm curious about when it comes to how Tyron Liu is handling this team. Something that I know he knows needs to change. The big question is, will it? I may get into that in the next episode if something better doesn't come along, but I will get to it at some point. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.